Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20. King Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill or complete. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Father, these verses are both beautiful and scary. To think that the righteousness of your demand is a righteousness that we cannot provide is a scary thought until the heart and soul is rightly introduced to the preciousness of the Lord Jesus. Those who know Christ today, remember, righteousness not our own, but his, forever secures our soul. And be there a sinner among us that know not the Lord, may today be their day of salvation. Help us then as we begin to grapple with this statement of the Lord Jesus in his messianic manifesto that makes so absolutely clear the demand of righteousness, both that which is required and that which is given, and also how that relates to the importance of the Old Testament law. Father, please help us, living in this New Testament era, not to disregard or fail to appreciate the significance of righteousness as represented in the Old Testament law. Give us then clarity as we begin to study this text, and for that we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Since the ratification of the United States Constitution in 1789, the Congress has added 30,000 federal statutes into the law of the land. Harvey Silverglade is a civil liberties lawyer who has written a book entitled Three Felonies a Day. The book is entitled Three Felonies a Day. In that book, Silverglade estimates 
that the average American unknowingly breaks three federal criminal laws every day. The thought that you and I are law-abiding citizens is somewhat of a mirage. There are so many laws and accompanying regulations in these United States of America that the average citizen is likely in violation of one thing or another absolutely perpetually. So the next time you're inclined to say, I am a law-abiding citizen, call yourself short just a little bit in light of the truth of the matter. That which Congress has done and is poised to do the more in making law upon law in the name of better citizen conditions is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees did to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, I, for one, would never proclaim that the United States Constitution was perfect. But I would say it's a pretty decent document. And it really doesn't need to be augmented by all those laws. But when we talk about the law of God, it is perfect. And it doesn't need an addition. And it doesn't need an edit. And it doesn't receive any benefit by supplementing it with the thoughts of men ever, 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 ever. The scribes and Pharisees added to God's law in the name of progress and well-being for Jewish citizens. Their self-directed additions bound the people in the extreme and in the minute while bringing to the scribes and Pharisees honor and a lot of physical resources. Yet in the first century, Israel, most Jewish people viewed the scribes and Pharisees as the best keepers of God's law to be found among them. Just like you might say, well, I'm no Puritan. The Jew of that day might well say, well, I'm no Pharisee. This is why we've said previously at verse 20 that the declaration of the Lord Jesus demanding a superior righteousness to that which was commonly seen among the scribes and the Pharisees was truly shocking to the crowd listening to him on that day of record. We have very little experiential comparison to the fussy additions and traditions that were promoted by those religious zealots, by those religious rulers. Let me give you this morning just one quick example. Uh, most all of us are familiar with the biblical Sabbath law, forget, forbidding work and business as usual on the Sabbath day 
in order that God might be rightly trusted, rightly loved, and rightly worshipped by Jewish people. Uh, The religious rulers fussed over that Sabbath law, wondering what it was that would constitute work and business as usual on the Sabbath. And they determined that to write two letters of the alphabet on a page, like my initials on this page, would be perfectly permissible on the Sabbath day. I could write my initials, TW, on the Sabbath day and still perform the law as promoted by the scribes and the Pharisees. That said, I could not write TWT for adding the third letter of written material on the Sabbath day would be a violation of God's law. So here is God's law kept, and here is God's law broken. Here is God's law kept, and here is God's law broken. And I don't think there's a person here that doesn't see the absolute asinine element of that kind of thing happening right out of the flow of Jewish leadership. They fussed over the law, and thereby they turned everything into the extreme and the minute. They absolutely, they absolutely, in adding to the law, did not in any way fulfill the law of God as given to and written down by Moses. By no means did they honor the law by that kind of fussiness. By no means did they, did they uh, bring a sense of, uh, of attention rightly to the law by their additions to it. Over weeks to come in this text and those following, we will gain clear and profound insight into the exact relationship of the written law of God to the Lord Jesus. We will come to see time and again the demand of God for perfect righteousness and the Lord Jesus himself as the only one that has ever met that demand. And more than that, we will see that the good news actually is good news. That we preach in the terms of the righteous Lord acting to make the unrighteous righteous before God, as was ordained by the sovereign decree of God and foreshadowed in the written law. The written law of God foreshadows the foreordination of God's decree to save mankind. Don't you dare, as a New Testament believer, develop a bad attitude towards the law of God. As the Messiah's manifesto continued on the day of record, we see that King Jesus offered this unique perspective concerning righteousness and the law. We begin with a corrective perspective. Verse 17, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law, 
or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill or complete. Of course, that would be the specific charge that would be made against him in the coming days by the religious rulers, namely, that he did disregard and dismiss the law of God as written. And it was and is imperative that God's people understand the absolute commitment to the uh, of faithful allegiance to the Lord Jesus, uh, as it were, to the law of God as written. And so Jesus says, don't think. Now, if all he said was don't think, then, then don't thinking would be the, 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 the obedience to it. No, he didn't say don't think. He said don't think wrongly. Don't think the way that you're inclined to think. Uh, think not. The word think here means to hold a view, to hold a custom, or to hold a practice as a matter of perspective. Jesus wanted the crowd and his followers to know that they should not view him as, his, as, as one that is against the law. They should not view his teaching as that which is a contradiction to the law. Uh, they should not view his work as overthrowing or supplanting the law of God. Again, those three areas. This little statement, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, indicates that the Lord Jesus uh, should not be viewed as coming to uh, 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 be against the law, uh, that the Lord Jesus' coming was not to be teaching, as it were, in contradiction to the law, uh, nor was it uh, his work to overturn or supplant the written law of God. Even many uh, 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 informed uh, Baptist uh, congregants have the idea uh, that the law has been replaced. And there is no replacement for the law. There is absolutely no replacement for the law. It astounds me that the Lord Jesus used the most precise terminology in order to be clearly understood then and now. Jesus spoke of his relationship to, here are the Bible words, the law and the prophets. Now the term law in the first century could be understood in four different ways. Complementary ways, three of them out of four, but four different ways. The term law was used when referencing the Ten Commandments or the moral law of God, thou shalt not. The law is the title for the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. Likewise, the term the law was used for the broader body of material, Genesis through Deuteronomy, known among the Jewish people as the Torah, known among Greek-speaking Jews as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So the law could refer just to the Ten Commandments, or the term the law could refer to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then, of course, uh, 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 the, uh, the Jewish reference to the law could be understood as a reference to the whole of uh, the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures. 
That's why Jesus said, the law and the prophets, which clearly specifies that he is talking about the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, including the Hebrew prophets, as being the focus of his instruction not to think that he had come to destroy that. He did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, or if you will, the totality of law as represented Genesis to Malachi in three categories, moral, civil, and ceremonial. The Lord Jesus made it very, very clear by the way that he said that, that he was talking about the whole of the Hebrew scriptures. It was also common in that day, and in fact the most common for the average Jew in the first century, to think of the law, the title, the law, as meaning the biblical text with all the additions and the traditions of the religious rulers as agreed upon. The dear Jewish people were actively persuaded to embrace the additions and traditions to the Hebrew scriptures on a plane equal to the scriptures. And in most cases, touching their daily lives, the additions and the traditions were held up above the actual scriptures. By saying, think not, I've come to overturn the law, the Lord Jesus affirmed his absolute commitment to the Hebrew scriptures as the very law of God. And, at the same time, he began to correct the faulty view that the traditions of men were on an equal plane to those holy scriptures. Today we have a similar problem with the glut of opportunities to go to a bookstore and buy a study Bible. And I tell you that most of the time people end up with far more questions because of that which is written below the line than that which is written above the line. Because God has a way of making his word clear to a person, but sometimes the commentator at the bottom of the page is downright confusing. And it's always important when you have a good study Bible to remember that there are words in every page that did not come from God. It's always wise for you and I to be very fussy about the fact the Bible is the Bible and there is none else. And commentary is commentary. But the Bible is the Bible and there is nowhere else. And that distinction will solve a multitude of problems in the ebb and flow of life. Now you might ask, how in the world did the traditions and the additions of religious men come to be and also come to be honored on a plane equal to and even sometimes considered superior to uh, the word of God? How did it happen? 
How does that happen? Well, the answer might surprise you. The answer is the religious men all knew, they all knew that they could not meet the righteous heart demands of the law. And so they invented things that were easier for them to keep. You see, it's easier to keep a fussy external than it is to keep the heart law of righteousness. It's easier to keep a fussy external than it is to keep the heart law of righteousness. And we must always be careful in every generation that we don't set an external demand as being the thing by which a person might be perceived as being, oh, really spiritual or godly, when spirituality and godliness has to do with the righteous heart law and not with the aspect of the external. That said, uh, one of the great sins of modern Baptists is to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so we have become those that are against externals. And that's sad, because soap is good for your pits and mine. And, uh, and cleaning up and presenting your best to the Lord uh, in gathering is a good thing, not an evil thing. And uh, the whole idea that God's people ought to always be comfortable, like sweatpant comfortable, whenever they come together uh, to worship God, is just an absolute drag on the true uh, atmosphere of worship that is due a thrice holy God surrounded by heavenly angels. We ought to do our best for Christ 24-7. And all when we come together, we ought not look like we're here to play pickleball, although there's nothing wrong with that game. Some of you know I like it. The Pharisees, the scribes lived according to those self-righteous rules by their own strength, resolve, and resources. And thereby, they gained reputation of really being something special in the congregation of the Jews. They became known as the best keepers of the law by their own approvals. Beloved, that is Christianity in Western Michigan. Western Michigan Christianity is being known by a group as really something special for God. And there's great work and energy put into being known for that. And the reality, the heart of righteousness reality, not so much. The Lord's think not, have no active thought, said Jesus. 
that I came to destroy the righteous law of God as written. Made it very clear that he was also distancing himself from the self-righteous additions and traditions promoted and commonly embraced in his day. So much of our embrace of biblical doctrine is built upon the proverbial proof text. And one of the things that has unnerved me in my senior years of preaching and teaching is how that so many of those proof texts really don't prove uh, what it is we're actually saying about God when you actually study it. You've heard me say it before, study has ruined a lot of my sermons, and, uh, and uh, study has ruined a lot of my comfortability in regards to doctrinal verses to quote uh, when a certain thing is forwarded. And, uh, and so I, I said to the Lord here a couple weeks ago, heading into this saying, man, it'd be nice, it'd be so nice if I could land on another, another verse of scripture that would really just nail the idea of the law thing because it's, it's still an issue. And the proof text that we usually use uh, may introduce us to the idea of, of the concept, but they don't nail it. And then here just a couple of weeks ago, I was reading again in my regular daily scripture reading, and I was in Psalm 119, and I landed on Psalm 119, 142. Psalm 119, 142. Listen to this. The psalmist said, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Not only is God righteous, but God's righteousness is forever. God is righteous, and his righteousness is forever. Okay, again the verse. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is truth. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law, the law and the prophets, is truth, the truth. And the definite article, the truth, allows me to add the words of it. So here's the verse TWTL modernized for your uh, English ears. God, thy righteousness is an eternal righteousness, and thy law is the truth of it. The law is the truth of God's righteousness. The law is the truth of God's righteousness. The law is the truth of God's righteousness. Don't let that go. Don't let that go. Don't let that go. We say it otherwise before moving on. In the mind of the first century Jewish scribe, the Lord Jesus broke many laws. In the mind of God the Father, King Jesus broke not a single one. King Jesus wanted the crowd and his disciples to think not in the way many would think of him, leading to a rejection, but to think right about him in relationship to God's written law. 
The law, said Paul, Romans 7, 12, holy. The law, said Paul, Romans 7, 12, just or righteous. The law, said Paul, Romans 7, 14, spiritual. You need to lift up your head and embrace the truth of the perfection of God's law as revealed to and through Moses as an eternally existing thing. Think right about Jesus in relationship to God's written law. Secondly, the verses that we look at for the first time this week uh, relate the idea of a confirming preeminence. Jesus also said, in verse 18, for verily, or amen, or verily, truly, assuredly, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not jot, one jot, or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. This law, this law of God, shall not pass away. No word originating from God, no word originating from God, can fail. No word originating from God can fall. Uh, no word originating from God uh, can uh, not meet its, uh, its destination point. The comparative declaration of verse 18 tells us that the written word of God, specifically referenced on the day of record, would of course be the Old Testament uh, scriptures or the Hebrew scriptures, that the scriptures would outlive the, the universe. Did you see that? For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass. Now, if you listen to the news, uh, you think that the earth is about ready to, to go now. Uh, but the reality is, the fact is, the Bible says that uh, uh, the earth is, uh, uh, would have to completely pass away before anything of the law of God could pass away. In other words, the Hebrew scriptures, the truth of God's law, will indeed outlive this modern, this current universe. Both what Jesus said as recorded here and how Jesus said it underscores the absolute and authoritative certainty of God's word or God's law. I chased in preparation for today the phrase heaven and earth. It's found 31 times in the Bible. And most usually the phrase heaven and earth speaks of God himself. In the 19 Old Testament references to heaven and earth, God is said to be the creator of it, heaven and earth, the possessor of it, heaven and earth, the one who calls it to witness against sinners, heaven and earth, the one deserving all its praise, heaven and earth, the one that occupies it completely, heaven and earth, and the source of all its ordinances. You don't usually pick out the song, Whiter Than Snow, to sing in July. Bill picked it out for today. It was a good bet. And there is snow on the ground. So we sang with understanding and present witness, because we depend upon the ordinances of God. God's servants are distinguished as those serving the God of heaven and earth. That which was created 
the heaven and the earth, is far, far, far lesser than the one who created it. God is greater than heaven and earth. God made it. God controls it. God appoints its purpose. God determines its end as exactly communicated in the Old Testament scripture. Nobody here would have a problem with me asserting that God certainly outlives the heaven and earth that he made. And in his first reference to heaven and earth, from the lips of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, he declares that God's law, like God himself, outlives the heaven and earth. That's the point. That's the point. The law of God given, the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, were, are, and will be. Not even the smallest part of God's law shall fail or fall. We'll come back to the jot, better understood as the Hebrew letter yod, and the tittle next time. But for now, just relish this truth. God's word cannot be removed or modified until everything God has planned comes to its perfect fruition. And even then, Psalm 119 and 89 says, Forever, O Lord, is thy word settled in heaven. And of course you know that I further want to say that uh, that means that the scripture is indeed the preeminent thing. There is something that you and I are familiar with that indeed in all the universe, I don't care whether you're talking Earth or Mars, I don't care if you're talking about the sea or the stars. I don't care whether you're talking about apes or men. There is something that is preeminent in all the earth. And the preeminent thing is the word of the living God. And of course, you also know that then I want to go on to say that there is indeed one and only one preeminent person. And that person is King Jesus. The Bible is the preeminent thing. Jesus is the preeminent person. And those two preeminences of the thing and him are absolutely undiscernible as to distinction when you start to chase the reality of perfection and intent and the gift of God which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A confirming preeminence in the law which was already in their possession and the king who spoke on this occasion. The two preeminent things come together in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. The Bible and the Lord Jesus right there. Preeminent in all the earth. 
speaking to the people in that moment of time. And that brings us then this morning to what I call the completing presence. Uh, 18 again. For verily I say unto you, uh, till heaven and earth uh, pass. Pass, number one. One jot nor tittle shall in no wise pass. Pass, uh, number two. From the law till all things be fulfilled. Pass, number three. What? I said, verse 18, I really say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, number one, one jot uh, or one tittle shall by in no wise pass, that's number two, uh, from the law till all things be fulfilled, pass, number three. You see, I have to tell you that the word fulfilled, verse 18, is not the same as the fulfill uh, found in verse 17. Uh, the word fulfill in verse 17 means complete. Jesus said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to complete, but to fulfill. But then in verse 18, Jesus said, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not jot, I should say, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all things come to pass. The second word, fulfill, or fulfilled means come to pass. Jesus is the completing presence of the law of God on earth in that moment of human history. He is the completing presence. Again, pass twice in verse 18. Heaven and earth pass before anything of the law would ever pass. Indeed, we know that this heaven and this earth will pass away in the plan of God. God will renovate by means of fire. And we also know and have said that the word of God is forever or eternal. The further uh, defining and clarifying phrase here, uh, phrase here is, to all things be fulfilled, including that third sense of passing. When you put verse 17 and verse 18 together, you see that Jesus is the person in whom the divine purpose of God's law comes to pass. The foreordination, the foreordination of God his eternal decree passed, established that the law would foreshadow the Lord. The righteousness that is reflected in the law, holy, just, perfect, and righteous, would indeed be used to set up and introduce Jesus Christ. It would glorify him. It would be what authorizes us to know who our Savior is. That is the significance. And Jesus is in this text declared to be the completion of it. To become the, as it were, the, the object of our faith. Jesus Christ. The beautiful sense of law and Lord, law and Lord. Law leading us to the Lord is something that you and I need to better appreciate, even in regards to evangelism. 
Because the law works to condemn so that the person then views the Lord right as the Savior. Without the law's law's condemnation, a person cannot logically come to the moment of the Lord's salvation. The law and the Lord beautifully locked together in the mind of God in eternity past by means of foreordination and his eternal decree that set forth the entirety of his plan for the angels. Father, we've only begun to just think a little bit about these four verses, but we pray that the foundation laid today would be used of thy spirit to help us, to strengthen us, to prompt us, to encourage us for days to come. And we pray that the clarity of it would prepare us for further study should you tarry in the week ahead. We thank you that our faith has a specific object. And that object is none less than Jesus Christ. We know that you intend that our response to you be a response and an expression of faith and confidence in the person of Jesus Christ as the one held dear. And we pray that our expression of faith today would increase as a result of our understanding of the relationship of the law and the Lord. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.